I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. How's things? Not too catastrophic, I hope. I'm reporting to you from a field in Norfolk. It is around about the middle of November 2021. It is the afternoon of the day out here. And it's a good one. Excellent job from the trees, from the grass, from the sun... Uh, the sky. It's all working out. It's nice and cold and fresh. Very bright. The colours of autumn are popping. I have been doing some shopping. Rosie is up ahead bopping. It's really beautiful out here. What do you think, Rose? I love it. Let's stay out here for a long time. Okay. Hey. Hello, dog. I love you. That's what I was shooting for. I was hoping for a flappy reset, and I got one. Okay, hey, stop aimlessly waffling and tell the podcats about episode number 169, which features a rambling conversation with the British actor, comedian, and writer Katie Wicks, or, as my autocorrect would have it, Katie Six. No, I mean Wicks. It's a name. I appreciate all your help with all my atrocious spelling. But come on, mate. I've written this name over and over again. So, you know, flex those AI muscles and stop suggesting that I call her Katie Six. Thanks. Okay, Wix facts. Katie, currently age 41, grew up outside Cardiff, Wales. She studied at the University of Warwick. Then Katie attended the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, where she competed in the Funny Women Awards, meeting her sometime comedy partner Anna Crilly in the process. Anna and Katie ended up making a sketch show on Channel 4 in 2013. It was called Anna and Katie. These days, both are successful actors in their own right. Katie is one of the stars of Staff Let's Flats on Channel 4. She plays Carol, the estate agent. But she's also been an integral part of shows like Ghosts, Not Going Out, and The Windsors, in which she delivers a suitably unhinged and brilliant portrayal of Sarah Ferguson. She was in Amanda Inucci's satirical show Time Trumpet back in 2006. I was in that too. We didn't talk about that, but we did talk about another show that we were in together around that time, as well as, also from around that time, quite a painful audition that we both attended. In 2019, Katie was one of the cast of Taskmaster, Series 9, though sadly she had to miss a couple of days filming following the death of her mother. She'd been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour shortly after Katie's father died from dementia the previous year. And the year before that, Katie's best friend had died. This brutal run of bereavement is one of the things Katie writes about with a combination of humour and painful insight in her book Delicacy, a memoir about cake and death, published earlier this year. In the book, Katie talks about the many strange and surprising aspects of grieving, including being asked to talk about it on podcasts. And she also describes her sometimes fraught relationship with food and body image, a relationship that, not just for her, is seldom made easier by casual comments from family members and people in the TV industry. Early on in Katie's career, one sitcom producer advised her that she was, quotes, too in-between looks-wise. You either need to put on loads of weight 
or lose loads of weight. I talked about some of this stuff with Katie when we recorded our conversation remotely in July of this year. It was just over a month at that point after all the legal restrictions on social contact intended to reduce the spread of COVID had been lifted, though both of us were still feeling a little uneasy about the prospect of socialising more heavily again. Katie had also recently had her COVID vaccination and was feeling brain foggy. What else did we talk about? We also talked about not making it in America, the weirdness of small talk and the therapeutic value of music. And just so you're aware, towards the end of our conversation, as well as some fun death chat, there's also a description of a car accident Katie was involved in that she writes about in her book. That's probably around the 35-minute mark of this podcast, in case you want to skip it for whatever reason. I mean, you know, it may be that there's other things we talk about that you find unpleasant to listen to, but I suppose that... That seems like a specific one I would understand. If I'd been in a serious car accident, I wouldn't necessarily want to hear people talking about them afterwards. Anyway, if you skip that bit, come back for the outro about 10 minutes later, where I'll be serving up some more great hot waffle and playing an old clip of me and Joe on XFM talking about that nightmare audition that me and Katie attended back in 2006. I'll also be giving a couple of shout-outs for things you might enjoy, too. A couple of recommendations. But right now, with Katie Wicks, here we go. When I said, because I'm filming Stath at the moment. Oh, yeah. Which, um, hooray, by the way. Can't wait. Hooray, I know. It's an absolute dream because, you know, we're all just good mates and it's just so funny. I love it. Mm. Anyway, I said to Tash yesterday um, that I was doing this. Any, I said, any tips? And she went, oh, just be silly. Just be silly. <laughs> and um, I haven't spoken out loud today, so I'm really um, nervous about that. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that and the brain fog, you know, you do well to get a personality out of me. Plus, I, I spent all day writing yesterday. I didn't see anyone. So I actually haven't spoken to anyone for 24 hours. So I don't really... I, I haven't really spoken to anyone other than my family. And it's pretty much monosyllabic exchanges that I have with my children yeah. and my wife as well. It's all just kind of admin, house admin, you know? Yeah. We just came back from a few days at Latitude Festival, though. Oh, yeah. God, I remember festivals. Yeah. It's a testival, this one, because, I don't know, they managed it. I think it was the first festival in the world to go ahead at this point in the pandemic. And people are curious to see how it goes for the people who were at the festival, how many people get infected. I mean, so far, everyone I know at the festival has been pinged. And they must have known that that was going to happen. You think it was a trap? But the reason I mentioned latitude was... Oh, yeah, brain fog. Just general brain fog. I mean, it definitely comes and goes. Now we have a phrase for it, brain fog, which I don't remember people using that much before the pandemic. Do you? No, not really. I mean, it was really... Yeah, when I had the vaccine, it was a really intense experience. I've, I felt stoned for about two weeks. Oh, I mean, I was you? off my face. Right, yeah, okay. like I was like gone. I had to go for a neurological exam. I had to go to hospital. I was really... Because you were really worried. Well, no, after 10 days, they said... I went on the website and it said, look, if you've got a headache and short-term memory and brain fog, still after 10 days, you should, you should call whatever the number is, 111. Mm. So I did, and I was filming. And they said, oh, yeah, no, you, you've got to go straight to hospital. But I think they were, like, completely overreacting. So I did, and I had to wait for so long. But, um, no, I'm quite relaxed about it. But, yeah, I mean, it's a little... It is a bit of a worry. But it's also... 
it's it's lingering. It's going, but it's it's lingering. Yeah, it is. It's a really weird feeling. May I ask which flavor of jab you had? Az Zeneca. Yeah, I like to think of it <laughs> as the punk option. Yeah. Also, I'm just like a you know my body's so sensitive. It's really boring. It re- it really reacts to whatever I put in it. Like paracetamol makes me go to sleep. Okay. Ibuprofen makes me feel really weird. Like, you know, I knew, I knew going in it was going to be like a festival in my body. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing anyway, though, Katie? I haven't seen you. When was the last time I saw you IRL? No, I was just thinking that. I can't, my guess would be it was probably at some sort of gig. But I I feel like I haven't been in a room in, with you for a long time. I haven't been in a room yeah. with anyone for a long time. Yeah. Definitely the last time maybe the only time that we worked together was on Rush Hour. Oh, yeah. I was ho- hoping, <laughs> hoping it would get mentioned. The BBC Three hit <laughs> sketch show. You don't get many themed sketch shows anymore, do you? No, you don't. And this one was, the theme was, say the theme. Drum roll. Trans- transport. <laughs> <laughs> transport and travel. Yeah. Funny things that happen in vehicles seem to be the theme. Yeah. I mean, it was... It was my first, not my first ever job, but first ever series I'd been in. Oh, really? Mm. I I was probably a baby. Yeah, I would have been about 26 or something. Wow. So you were in it. Frankie Boyle was in it. Frankie Boyle was in it, weirdly. Yeah, I remember doing a sketch with him. He was very nice. He was very, um, he was quite sort of paternal. He was, wasn't he? He was friendly and smiley. Um, yeah, I mean, it was... Um, Miranda Hart. Oh, yeah. She did a series of lollipop lady sketches and perhaps they just filmed them in a block. And and I think Laura Solon was in yes, it. Yes, she was nice. I haven't seen Laura in a really long time. I hope she's all right. Yeah. I think she's in LA. For her you know, sins. Doing all that. <laughs> she's been banished to LA. Um, <laughs> Bloody la la la. Have you ever um, gone out and done, what do they call it? No. Pilot season. Pilot season. Um, no, I haven't. I hate flying, so that's a factor. I thought you were going to say I hate Americans. I hate Americans. Um, yeah, that that is a factor. It's got better. One of my best mates, who is a physicist, hmm. once on a flight, spent a, the whole flight explaining to me exactly what was happening and aerodynamics and everything with like a comb and a piece of paper. She like sort of demonstrated it. What, like, like humming? Like <laughs> This is no. what is happening in the plane. <laughs> she pulled out a couple of instruments. <laughs> to, um, so that's a factor. I just, I've never done it. I've never been tempted. I think things have changed, but I think for years and years, I just thought that maybe you had to just sort of be beautiful to do it and that there was no point. I just sort of decided that it was really shallow and was going to be really stressful. And if I was going there now, it would be amazing to sort of go as a writer mm-hmm. and go with a script and wave that around. I think that'd be much more satisfying. Would you ever want to do that? I mean, I would want to. What I would want to do is um, be offered a part unconditionally, be flown out there, be told I was brilliant, do the part, come back, yeah. win some kind of award. That would be great. But what I would not want to do is go out there and really work hard and slap around and be humiliated and turned down which is what you have to do of course unless you're lucky or you've got some kind of unique thing about you or you're incredibly hot for some reason but i've never been in that position there's enough to be getting on with here it's fine yeah exactly plus i always think like what's the end game for these people what is really to be gained from going out and you know like best case scenario you become a movie star and uh, you're one of those Brits who's like a big famous Brit. But then for most people, even if it goes quite well, most likely scenario is you get a part in a sitcom and the sitcom gets cancelled after six episodes or something. Yeah, or you're in a bad sitcom for like eight years and it's hell (laughs) and you're not allowed to do anything else. Yeah. That would make me feel like my soul had shrunk. Horrible. Also, I feel like for some people it's just about you know, they'll never be satisfied. It's just a hunger that's never sated for power and attention. And I feel like, you know, we all know people like that. Yes. In this in this. Game. No, this is good. This is good. This is making me feel better about um, not going out and making it. Yes, they are yeah. insecure, needy people who are trying to fill a hole within themselves that will never be filled. And the fact that I'm not doing that makes me brilliant. Also, yeah. if you... Makes you more confident. Yeah. If, you, like... 
again, to return to the best case scenario, long running sitcom that people love, Friends, for example. I mean, look at those guys. Did you see that reunion thing? No, because I don't have special telly, but I, I doesn't. I never really liked it, to be honest. No. I never really got into it, but I've seen the clips. Yeah, yeah. It's. Did you ever see Matthew Perry's play when it was in the West End? No. There was one review that said something like, um, just as David Mamet probably wouldn't be good in a sitcom, it hasn't worked the other way around here. As in, you know, like, why does this sitcom actor think he can write a play as mm. well as David Mamet? And I, yeah, that that sort of fear of being a bit of a hobbyist who's just decided to do this now. No, it's difficult to reinvent yourself. And people are delighted when other people do try and reinvent themselves and fail somehow because they they just think, oh, yeah, good, I'm not going to do that because it takes a lot of guts to do that. And everything is geared towards people carrying on. You stay in your lane. You carry on doing what you're doing. Don't rock the boat. I mean, there's lots of practical reasons for that. But it's really hard making a massive change. That's why people write books about it. And, you know, it's a bit like diet books, isn't it? It's this spurious promise of your new ideal life. Yeah. All you have to do is make it happen. And and then you get there and, and it's still you. Exactly. So. Wherever you go, there you are. There you are. Yeah. That's the title of a monk's book, isn't it? Is it? There's a monk who wrote that book. I don't know him personally. It's just just monk trivia. Hang on. This is what Google is for. Well, I've got a... The first result is book by John Kabat-Zinn. That sounds as if it might be a monk. Yeah. 1994. No matter how busy you are, find quiet, reflective moments in your life and reduce your stress levels drastically with this classic best-selling guide from a mindfulness expert. But uh, wherever you go, there you are is a quote that people had on posters in the 60s. You know, I mean, it's been around for a long oh, time. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. By the way, I just said that the way I just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that kind of dismissive way, my wife absolutely hates it because she thinks I'm being sort of contemptuous and lording something over her. And it's a really bad habit that I've got into because I don't mean I don't mean it to be like that. But I can understand how it might sound like that. So I apologize. Yeah, I I mean, I. Yeah, I I can understand. If I was hearing it every day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think I'd like it. Um, are you in a uh, long-term relationship or marriage currently? No, neither. Right. I have I have options. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I'm a real loner. Like, if anything, I spend too much time alone and I have to... I mean, I find it quite tiring being around a lot of people. You know, small talk and all of that. I don't totally understand the rules. I don't know, like, I, I just run out of things to say so quickly when it's not like a topic. Yeah. Not like this. I mean, like, you know, in hairdressers and stuff. <laughs> when it's kind of like you don't really want to give away, like, you don't really, it doesn't have to be intimate. No, you, in fact, you don't want to. That's the whole thing about small talk is that you want to steer clear of anything that will introduce points of potential friction, right? Yeah, it's meant to be bland and accommodating. Exactly. And it's a practical relationship. Either you're in a shop, there's not the time. It's not useful for you to get to know each other. Or someone is maybe cutting your hair or you're at the gym or whatever it might be. It's not useful to suddenly start sharing your views on transgender rights or whatever it might be. Yeah. But it's interesting because also when I was writing yesterday, I was writing the script and... I haven't written dialogue in ages and I was thinking about how like tricky it is but also I was thinking about how the way people speak in real life is so fucking bizarre when you really listen to it Mm -hmm. you know people talk over each other and say such odd things and like I frequently put real things that have happened or real speech you've overheard into scripts and stuff but it's always the thing that people often say oh that's a bit unbelievable or that's Mm. you know too much it's always the most real thing that I think is the most weird. <laughs> it's like you want, in drama, you're doing a version of real life that you're trying to organise 
and make real life less messy or something like that, aren't you? Now, here's a segue for you. Okay. Is that what you were doing with your book, Katie, Delicacies, which I read and very much enjoyed? It's heavy, though. To pick up. Is that okay to say? Yeah, no, of course. Like, I... No, it's interesting because I don't think of it as heavy because it's my life. Mm -hmm. It just seems like, you know, what happened, not heavy. But yeah, no, I like it. It's better than someone saying it's not it's not heavy. Yeah, it is. Because it's you tackling. I mean, it's a memoir, right? Yeah. But it is you focusing on some of your struggles with anxiety and depression and then grief after the loss of your parents and other people in your life that you have loved so you're really tackling things that are difficult and people are talking about them more these days I guess but um, how did you feel writing all that stuff because I I had a similar thing of touching on some of those subjects when I wrote a memoir a couple of years back and I found it quite strange and you talk towards the end in the sort of afterward you interrogate what it is that makes you want to write about these things and write about yeah. grieving. And I had that. I, I spent a lot of time thinking like, is this good? Is this really helping me or anyone else? Is this just yeah. kind of uh, just self-indulgence? Is this sort of weakness to, to want to air all this stuff publicly? Yeah. And... Um, maybe get a pat on the back for being brave or yeah. maybe just make myself feel better or, you know, <laughs> did you have all that stuff? Oh, completely. Yeah. God, I mean, well, I guess I think that I was raised to, I think my family were like incredibly private mm -hmm. and there was a sense of you act one way sort of outside of the home and then inside the home you can kind of, you know, there was like a kind of performative version of you when you talk to the neighbours and then you could just kind of relax when you weren't around people. So I think for ages I wouldn't have dreamt of saying any of this out loud because it's really shameful to write about it or talk about it, definitely. But I think it got to a point where I felt really angry about that. Like I sort of thought, or well, who's going to decide what's private? I, I want to rebel against it. Like, fuck that. I think that's how I felt. And also I think... I was in, so, you know, it was a really painful time and I felt really, there was something very teenage about it. Like I wanted to just tell everyone that I wasn't having a good time. <laughs> like I wanted to hold people prisoner to this and go, look at this. Like it isn't funny. It's actually not funny at all. It's horrible. Like I, I felt like I was in that place for about three years and that's when I was writing. So it felt like a sort of tantrum, <laughs> a book tantrum. And that time was after your mother died is that right yeah so my friend my best friend dying and then my parents died you know in quite quick succession so it all happened in about three years them all dying together which so it was kind of like my I was really close to my parents and um so it was a bit like having your kind of foundations taken away it was really destabilizing and strange to kind of just feel like you've lost your family almost like overnight that's how it felt and I mean, I was 37, I think, when the first... No, 36, when my friend died, and 37 when... So, again, I, it's funny. I, I think being in your 30s is quite young to lose both. But, you know, I know people. There's lots of people that have lost parents much younger than that. So, you know, I'd always try and remember that. And I think I wrote about that in the book as well. There was a feeling of, well, what at what age do I have to be where it's not... where it's like I'll get less sort of sympathy and, mm -hmm. you know, like maybe... In your 20s, it's like, oh, God, this is going to really affect you all your life. But maybe 37, it's like, oh, come on, you're, a, you're an adult. You'll get over this now. This is just like what happens. But I, um, I mean, I was, yeah, I was really close to both of them. And it, yeah, it did affect me deeply. I just, the fact that people actually have to die just really affected me for ages. I couldn't really get my head around it. It was like... You know, it seems so sort of in the abstract, doesn't it? Until someone you know dies. Yeah. Did you used to think about all that kind of stuff before? I mean, I was definitely like a gothy, morbid teenager. But it was more like I was obsessed with ghosts and the paranormal. And like um, I had weird shrines. Yeah. So it was the fun aspect of death. <laughs> yeah. I had a really atheist upbringing, but mm -hmm. there was something in me that was very sort of like intense and fanatical like if I'd had a religious upbringing I would have been doing it to like the maximum 
I wanted to be a fashion designer for ages. So I just remember drawing a lot of dresses and being really into wearing black and dyeing my hair purple. But other than that, you weren't overly morbid or worried in that respect. I mean, you talk about your... There's a lot of stuff about your body image in the book. There was a lot that I related to when you were talking about your relationship with food and uh, snacking and just your relationship with your body and the way you regarded yourself and the kind of comments that people made to you about your body. I mean, people do this stuff really without thinking, don't they? Because I think a lot of the time it is people projecting their own insecurities onto you. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose it comes from like an internalised sort of fat phobia, I guess. Right. Like when I was growing up, the women that were most concerned with my appearance were the ones who had issues, definitely, themselves. Sometimes it was a thing of like people who maybe have been in a kind of state of semi-starvation or control all their lives. And when they see someone else who's put on weight, it's a kind of like, why am I doing this then? You know, how dare you? I've, I've you know, been starving every day of my life. Why are you just suddenly deciding that you're going to, you know, be happy and be the size you want to be? Like, how dare you? I've, I've been struggling every day. Mm-hmm. So it's almost maybe like a jealousy. I don't know sometimes. But I mean, I would just never try and I just don't think I'd ever comment. I try not to comment on people's appearance, I think, at all now, because I just never know what's going on. And, you know, I just never know what it's going to bring up for them, good or bad. (laughs) What were your parents like with you? My mum, it turns out, and I'm, you know, this is uh, if there was a bingo card for this podcast this would definitely be one of the squares is me talking about or using the phrase i'm still in the process of sorting through my parents belongings i think i use that phrase on pretty much every episode of this podcast or have done for the last it's a, it's catchy i'll give you that <laughs> i should i should get it put on a t-shirt <laughs> should get back back on the old panel shows it's brilliant <laughs> Have you got a caption for this funny photo? Well, it looks like the Prime Minister's still in the process of longings. <laughs> but at the moment, I'm finding um, all this stuff in my mum's boxes, all this evidence of her ongoing campaign to have control over the way she looked. Yeah. Diet mags, all these articles about food that she would cut out from the Daily Mail and all these bits of equipment like uh you know things that you strap to yourself and they send electric shocks through you or something so you can just strap them there while you're sat at your desk or doing whatever you're doing and uh, in theory it's supposed to encourage weight loss she had loads of these gadgets and i always knew that she cared about that stuff because she gave my sister quite a hard time about it not so much me and my brother yeah but um you know I definitely acquired a few hang-ups but at the same time my mum made sure that there was a never-ending supply of French fancies in the cupboard Uh, (laughs) and I was delighted to be able to snaffle as many of them as I could so how does that work? that thing is so common with so many women I know or the women I grew up around of like self-sacrifice but you always like give and nurture and make sure everyone else is having the French fancies like that feels like it was kind of the the running theme of like this is kind of what the women do they just put their needs last and you know just make sure everyone else is okay and that's definitely a big part of how I was raised which I've had to try and kind of fight against but I I think I was really raised to see how I looked as being what I should base all my self-esteem on as it is for a lot of women I think that I know anyway and and I saw that and like so how my mother dealt with like aging for example like that was quite a sort of painful thing that I would see and I mean I felt it a little bit with writing the book because it was just so nice to use my brain and feel really it felt really like liberating that I wasn't that from the neck down it was just like whatever I'm writing a book. It felt really nice. Yeah, because I was just raised to think that that was the thing that should give you a sense of having any value in the world to concentrate on how you look. But Yes, using your brain as opposed to 
your career as an actor and someone who has to, for practical reasons, be aware of how they look? Yeah, I really loved it, I think, for that reason. Yeah. And I felt excited about just um, having a different way to feel proud of something I'd done, a different way to have self-esteem, I guess. Mm -hmm. And also, I was so aware that, yeah, like watching my mum age and stuff, I was just so aware that, well, of course that's not going to work if you put all your (laughs) sense of self on appearance. Like, that's going to go. That's going to be fleeting. So I'm going to have to come up with something else (laughs) eventually. You know, I also think it's really common that people kind of swap around. I see that quite a lot of like, oh, I'll get my self-esteem from this or from this or from this. And then, you know, if it's not a kind of foundation, then you're always going to be in trouble, I guess, aren't you? If you're looking outside of yourself, I guess that's that's the dream that you don't have to look outside of yourself for validation. But, you know, I think that's really hard not to do that. Yeah, of course. This feels like stupid pop psychology, but... I like stupid pop psychology. I even read... Do you, do you read stupid pop psychology books? Not really. Mm, I do. Sorry. No, We're not okay. the same. No, they're good fun. <laughs> Sorry we're not the same. Oh, that's okay. I, I celebrate <laughs> diversity. And... Do you ever meet people who get really annoyed that you're not like them? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Give me an example. It's a weird thing. Like, um, like when you show somebody that you love something you really love it it is kind of devastating when they don't like it because it feels like you're they're rejecting you yeah it's really hard things I love so much that they may as well be me you know so it's like (laughs) it's like an extension of me come on try a few out on me let's see if I get you well I started uh playing guitar in lockdown good one there's my guitar mainly classical guitar I really like it because you have to hold it like this. I find it really fun. Katie is indicating that she would hold it up. Like a double bass. Like a dance partner. Like a dance partner, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, classical and... I mean, Spanish guitar is what I want to really play. because I think because my dad loved it so much. And I think it's really common when someone dies to just, I don't know, like absorb something that they were into or mm-hmm. whatever. I've been having weekly lessons. Via the Zoom. Yeah, and I've been learning with someone else as well, so we can sort of hold each other accountable. It's been really nice. And I haven't played since I was a teenager, so it was like almost like starting again. And we're on like, we've been doing these like, working through these guitar books. The Guitarist's Way. Which have been really great, because I think they're written for like, you know, younger people. Uh But uh, yeah, I think I've made a lot of progress the, the guitar teacher he's amazing he's a, he's a jazz guitarist but the music theory i don't i mean i find it really really difficult yeah. really confusing but it has it really saved lockdown for me i really loved it it's very therapeutic anything musical yeah it's great i had brian eno on this podcast and uh, oh yeah i think i heard that one that was a dream come true for me very exciting yeah but he does this thing in his london studio i think every few weeks where he just gets a load of people together and and it's like a choir and they just sing together yeah but the the deal is that they have to all sing together it it, it can't be you know if, if chris martin is there or something it can't be him showboating and grandstanding about how yeah. c- cold player she is <laughs> it's all about joining their voices together and everyone making a lovely sound it would be like if we all got together and had to all say a joke at once (laughs) (laughs) and no one was allowed to say it louder or have a microphone yeah that (laughs) love that communal comedy supportive (laughs) non-showy offy comedy i don't believe that that's a thing do you remember were you part of that thing where they decided that they were going to bring back oh hang on did you do it no if i come they decided to bring back whose lines anyway and we all had to have like mass oh. we like mass auditions <laughs> do you remember yeah man i'm sure you were there and it was like you got us stale you got tapped on oh. the shoulder like in the room and got us to leave it so was funny. terrible yeah it was a big circle of people i talked about it on the podcast when i was on xfm with joe years ago like 2006 it must have been or thereabouts yeah, and it was a big group of people, and I was one of the older people going along because mainly it was young, hungry comics. Yeah, desperate people who'd like tread on you to. <laughs> yeah. But I ended up doing the pilot, and Tim Key did it, Marek. But yeah, I just remember, yeah, like being in a massive circle 
And then the producer saying something like, right, you, you and you go in the middle and start a scene. It was that kind of thing. Yes. It was horrendous. And then it, you'd have to go around the circle and sort of riff on subjects like the last <laughs> book you read. And I had nothing. I was literally just well, saying I got through. words. And you got through. Because it was meant to be improvised, but it wasn't. Because when I did the pilot... He came round to my dressing room before and knocked on the door and went, do the woman who's off to buy eggs, do that. Make sure you do that, woman. Everyone loves her. <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK. So, And then I had to act surprised when the host, whoever it was, was like, uh, Katie, have you got anything to say about buying eggs? <laughs> what would you say now if someone put you on the spot for some egg material? Oh, God. I mean, um, I can't remember the last time I made a joke that wasn't about an egg. So, <laughs> easy. <laughs> I'm extremely excited. Tell us a yolk. There you that go. Kind of thing. Through to the next <laughs> round. Torture. No, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Do you go up for auditions for things a lot? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I find it tricky on Zoom, hmm. Zoom auditions. I did a Zoom audition recently and... It was like balance really precariously on something and it, like the top of my head kept getting cut off in the audition and then something else happened or whatever. And um, it was pretty awful. Anyway, about, about half an hour later, the casting director went on Twitter and wrote a tweet of something like, actors, don't, don't do the following in, uh, in auditions and then listed all the things I'd done. <laughs> I couldn't quite... I couldn't quite handle it. He didn't mention me by name, but it was, I mean, it was literally like 20 minutes after the audition. a a sort of handbrake um, tonal shift now so feel free to bat it away okay oh god oh god but can i ask you about the car accident that you had and oh god yeah god there's so much worse you could have asked okay you write in your book about this car accident that you had when you were in your 20s how old were you i was 20 uh, I was 26, I think, or maybe I was just about to turn 26, yeah. And that seemed like a, a watershed in a lot of ways. Is that the way it seems to you now? Yeah, it's funny, um, I mean, because I don't drive, and I'm sure it's, I mean, it is, I wasn't interested in driving before, but I think afterwards it was hard to be a passenger even for about a year. Um, and my dad never drove again, bless him, because he just you know, blamed himself and just thought I'm stupid and old and I've really hurt my daughter and I can't be trusted to drive. So it was really, it really impacted on everyone, you know, the whole family. And what happened? So we were, I was back home in Wales where I grew up and I'd gone back to visit my parents. And the only reason I know what happened is because the police came and had to like investigate the tyre marks and do all that, which was quite kind of exciting. I think what happened really was that it was kind of a blind spot. So I think my dad pulled out and didn't see this car coming and it hit us side on. So we, it, and the car was going at about 50. So we span and span and span, went through the central reservation and the car was just a write off. My dad was unconscious, but I was, I didn't, I was conscious for the whole thing. So I remember being inside you know, it was like being inside a washing machine, being inside the spinning was so, so, so fast. And like the sort of G-force of being like in the seat. And then the safety belt broke everything. It sort of touched really on my body. So collarbone and sternum and ribs. And my knee kind of was really badly hurt because it touched the middle bit of the car. And my dad fractured his skull on the kind of car frame like that. Mm -hmm. So... I think the fire brigade like got us out of all the metal and then I just remember being on a you know in the back of an ambulance and and that was it really the the violence of the impact was 
that was like unbelievable. Mm. It was just this horrendous, you know, to be hit at like 50 miles an hour. That was hard. That kind of the sound of it and everything. I, I had like really strange dreams thinking about the sound. Sometimes I also think, well, I'm not going to have two in my life. What are the chances of that? So sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm, I've got immunity. This is fine. This is all fine. Touch wood. It hasn't happened. Your chances have definitely gone down statistically, haven't they? I would have thought so. And then in the book, you... Well, I, I've heard you saying that... And maybe you say it in the book, or maybe I heard you say it elsewhere, that, you know, you're definitely a different person after experiences like that and then of course more importantly after losing people in your life and having them die um and you have to kind of adjust to letting go of that person that you used to be and what they were preoccupied by and adjusting to this new person and a new set of preoccupations and I really yeah. related to that and I just thought yes yeah. that's what my last five years has been all about and how are yeah. you able to express how you are different now yeah I mean it, it's funny because the brain fog that I had it's taken the edge off the kind of intensity I think of some of the emotions <laughs> so it's actually been quite nice in some ways it's like other medications, I guess, in that it takes off the top and bottom, doesn't it? Like when people talk about antidepressants, it's like you just in the middle band. So I and I think it's because I'm busy again and working. So I, I feel a little bit more kind of um, like I'm out of the period of like really intense grief. I think I think I heard you in an episode talking about, you know, whether to be there at the end and actually what it's like to be in the in the room and the noises and all of that detail which I actually loved hearing, again, because it's like, you know, it's so shocking. You sort of can't believe you're saying this, but it, it's weird how you can just sort of live through something really horrendous that I don't think I ever imagined I would have been able to deal with. So I'm kind of surprised at how I've been able to deal with it. Do you think maybe it's made you a little bit more fatalistic and robust as far as mortality goes? Yeah, how I feel about it is that it's a strange thing of feeling, you know, tougher and weaker mm -hmm. at the same time, because I feel as though my resilience to things has gone up or the kind of list has got to shuffle down a bit in terms of things that I think I would have got really stressed or upset about before. So there's definitely a sense of putting things into perspective. But I think that I felt very... Well, I guess it is, you know, like a form of PTSD. I had really bad insomnia for about two years after they died. And that was hard with filming because you have like 5am starts and I just would, you know, be like a zombie thinking, oh, please don't put this on TV. But, <laughs> oh my God. Which, what, what were you filming at that point? <laughs> I think, I think second series of staff, uh, that was, I wasn't sleeping so well. And I think maybe it was, there was one series of ghosts where I was pretty... It was a bit of a wreck. And also mum died in the middle of filming Taskmaster, which, which I didn't think I could carry on, but I'm glad I did because I was just a real mess. Oh, man. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes these things help, I think, the distraction or being forced to seem like you're okay. Mm -hmm. One thing that I find myself talking to people about a fair bit now is the possibility of acquiring some skills to help me face that moment better than my parents did not that they did a, an especially bad job they weren't kind of freaking out or uh you know it could have been way worse but i did feel like there's got to be a better way to to get ready for it and to make peace with it and to because i think both of them my mum was just fed up and like she sort of gave up a little bit and my dad was just very melancholy I mean, you know it sounds like a joke yeah of course he's melancholy he's gonna die but I think that there's got to be a way of making peace with it and not being like his thing was he was fretting I was like what are you fretting about he's like so many things it's like what mm. what's the point now though you know what I mean like mate I know that one of the things he was fretting about was the sale of his house and, you know, so so he wanted to tie up all the loose ends, basically. And it was right up until the, you know, the final 
as soon as the, the the sale of the house went through, then he was like, okay, I'm going to die now. But, um, <laughs> you know, he didn't get as much money as he was hoping for and all this kind of, and it really bummed him out. It's like, yeah. don't worry too much about the sale of the house. Yeah. I mean, do you think things like that are just a way of clinging on to a little bit of control in, when you don't really of course. have any? I mean, I remember trying to explain to my mum that she didn't really need her purse anymore. She just didn't. There was nothing to be done with her purse. That was really... Or she didn't need shoes anymore. That was really hard. Mm. Just sort of like, nah, that's it. You know, you're 68, you don't need shoes. It hasn't made me think about my own death, which is odd, because I feel in some ways that I have become... Well, in answer to the question earlier about how I'm different, I feel like I've become more of a person now that they have died. That I feel like I've really... I mean, they call it individuating oh, yeah. in therapy talk, don't they? And I, so I feel as though in some ways it's like things are about to be more real. So I feel like it's almost, I don't, I don't feel morbid at all. I feel like, okay, life, like this is being an adult now. This is like, it feels like the beginning, not an end at all hmm. for me. So I, I don't think that's a normal reaction because my brother's gone the other way. I mean, he said to me the other day, he was like, I, I've, I've worked it out. I'm going to drive up to the top of a uh, <laughs> volcano in Iceland and just drive in. I'm just going to drive into a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I oh, wonder okay. if that's a male thing because I, I can relate to that. Driving into a volcano. <laughs> He's like, I don't, I don't want any of that. I don't want to be in a hospital gown, my ass hanging out. I'm just going to go in a, I'm just going to go into a volcano. Yeah, yeah. I I can I really can relate. My my one is um I always imagine going off the Niagara Falls in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> As a party trip. I don't know See, why. I I don't relate to that. I want my every last word recorded. <laughs> I, want, I want to be, you know, saying like something really wise and helping sure. someone right to the very min- last minute. No, I mean obviously I'm going to be doing a podcast. <laughs> But then I'll be then I'll be checking the charts and getting really pissed off that Louis's podcast is above mine. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, Podcats. That was Katie Wicks talking to me there. Thank you very much indeed to her for making the time to waffle with me through the brain fog. And I have posted links in the description of this podcast to a few clips of Katie uh, doing a uh, task mastermind with Alex Horn, appearing on Alan Davies's Yet Untitled, a couple of clips of her in other things, and there's also a link to the Waterstone site where you can buy her book, Delicacy, a memoir about cake and death. There's also a link to a podcast that I hosted recently. Well, I kind of hosted. I was a guest host for the Soda Jerker podcast, which I've mentioned on here before, uh, hosted by a couple of musicians from Liverpool, Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor, and they interview other musicians about their process and the songwriting craft. And it's a really fantastic archive of interviews with all sorts of 
legends of music there. A lot of them from the 80s, from when I was growing up and getting into music. And there's loads of conversations with people I really loved, like Howard Jones and Nick Hayward and Martin Fry and Colin Hay from Men at Work. Uh, but it's not just sort of 80s pop maestros on there. you got Sir Paul McCartney, you got Alicia Keys, you got St. Vincent, Charlene Spiteri, Roisin Murphy, Maximo Park, Nitin Sawney. These are some of the more recent ones. Gregory Porter, The Staves, friends of the podcast, Mark Oliver Everett from The Eels. That's a really good one. Anyway, if you want to hear musicians talking about the secrets of their songwriting process then I highly recommend Soda Jerker. They've been at it for 10 years now, and for their 10th anniversary bonus edition, I spoke to Simon and Brian about making the podcast and put a few questions from their listeners to them, as well as some of my own, and I also waffled a little bit with them about the tricks and techniques of talking to musicians and trying to get the best out of them when they are sometimes reluctant to share. And it was good fun. So that link is in the description of this podcast. Now I was going to play a clip of me and Joe talking about that audition that Katie Wicks also attended back in 2006 that we were talking about there. I will do that shortly, but just before I do, um, wanted to give a shout out to another friend of the podcast old friend of mine and Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux as well, Tom Hodgkinson. He is the editor of The Idler magazine, and he has a book out, The Idler's Manual. So, for those of you not familiar with the world of The Idler, here's my pitch. Are you the kind of person who's racked with guilt and shame if you have five minutes to yourself and you don't use it to maximise your potential for personal or professional advancement? If so, Tom Hodgkinson is here to provide reassurance in the form of his new book, The Idler's Manual. It's a collection of wisdom and experience accumulated over many years on the subject of idling as a means to getting more from life. I think when they first started doing The Idler, it was a bit of a goof. The idea of celebrating idleness, not laziness, but specifically idleness. And, well, I suppose what they are extolling the virtues of is something that crosses over with mindfulness, just trying to promote the benefits of taking it easy and stopping to look around once in a while, Ferris Bueller style, and to not feel you have to fill every available moment of the day with industry that serves your ambitions. Sometimes it's not only nice, but beneficial to do fuck all. That sounds nice, but not everyone has that luxury. No, good point, Rosie. Thanks very much for making it. But there's various ways to embrace idleness, even in the context of a life filled with work and family commitments. Yeah, whatever. I haven't got time to listen to you. I've got to go over here. Fly past from the hairy bullet. Right. Clip of myself and Joe from the archives now. This was when we were on XFM in 2006. When did we get to XFM? I think we started doing radio shows there in 2003. And uh, by 2006, we were doing podcasts for the first time. And this was one of the conversations from the live radio show that we used to do on Saturday mornings at XFM that ended up being part of one of the podcasts we put out around that time. And even though I don't think I was being especially indiscreet, I'm not sure that this conversation did me many professional (laughs) favours, certainly not with Dan Patterson, who I think may have emailed after... I put this out and said, like, oh, I'm so sorry to have ruined your day by giving you an opportunity to be in a TV show. Uh, Fair point. And you might say, well, 
Why are you raking over it again 15 years later, Buckles? Well, because why not? So here's me and Joe in 2006 on XFM talking the weekend after that audition that Katie Wicks was also present for. And it must have been March, I think, of that year. Here we go. Let us travel back into the toilet of time. Long ago when you were even more stupid. Do you remember when you did that thing? Let's discuss it in slightly too much detail. I got a call from my agent. She said, are you up for going to do an audition at the BBC where you'll have to do a little bit of improvising? Hey. So I thought, yeah, love a bit of improv. You know, I'm the improv king. And I imagined what the deal would be was going in there, two or three people maybe in a little room, you're given a scene and you, you kind of go crazy all over its ass. And I was led into the BBC and into a big room and there were... In this very large room, I would say about 30 or 40 fairly well-known comedians from the current live stand-up Any circuit. names we'd know? Uh, well, let me see. Maybe I probably shouldn't say exact names. Okay, yeah, no, know. it's a secret. Okay, no, but, that's good enough. But I can tell you that there were people in there who've been on shows like Little Britain, <gasps> Titty Bang Bang, yeah. uh, a lot of BBC Those are some shows. of the greatest shows on television. Uh, the Office. The Oh, you know, a lot yeah. of pretty well-known faces there and mm. certainly mm. very um, well-known stand-ups from the uh, current stand-up scene. And they were all, half of them were sat around the side. The other half of them were stood in a semicircle in the middle of the room, improvising uh, whose line is it anyway style games, you know? Yeah. And it turned out that this was a show being put together by the producer of Whose Line Is It Anyway, yeah. Dan Patterson, a new kind of improv show. And I didn't realise that was the deal at all. So I just went in there and I thought, oh, my God, this is my worst nightmare. Because I, like many other people, used to watch Have I Got News For You and think... You mean... I mean, whose line mm. is it anyway? And just sort of imagine what I would say if I was in that situation. Would I be able to come out with anything mm. funnier than Tony Slattery? And usually the answer was no, you know, maybe, you know, Tony Slattery may not be saying anything that funny, but it's probably better than I could manage if I was on the spot. So let's see, Joe Cornish, how you do. Oh, wow. With some of the yeah. things that were thrown at me. Right? OK, OK. But basically, I wanted to just turn around and get out of this room immediately. So I... were you standing in front of all these other comedians when you were asked to do this? Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. were being watched by like 38 other yeah. top stand-ups. So, so the first thing was, uh, for example, they had an object. Do you remember that they would give them an object yeah, and they'd yeah, have to sort of yeah, say crazy yeah, things yeah, about the object yeah. to recontextualise it amusingly? And they had a, a toy truncheon was one of them. Brilliant. And so you, what you'd have to do is when you had an idea for something funny to say about the toy truncheon... Oh, I'm feeling nervous You already. went into the middle of the semicircle and you tapped the person with the truncheon on the shoulder and said, Brilliant. freeze, and then you would say something funny. So you didn't have to go up, but no. if you didn't go up, you're not going to be in the show. No, exactly, exactly. You've got to make an effort. And some people were going mental with this thing. They were really trying hard and they had loads of things to say, yeah. some funny, some not. Uh, for example, there was with the, with the plastic truncheon, people were coming out with stuff like... Sir, this is salami. You are really spoiling us. That's good. Right. Uh, someone said, uh, step over here, sir. Empty your pockets, please. You know, like a handheld like, yeah. security yeah, detector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone said, oh, I've been overfeeding my slug. <laughs> it, was, it looked a bit like a slug. Uh, so anyway, then, then it was my turn. It's going to be a good show, isn't it? Yeah. When it was my, my turn to do something, I was sat down in a row because I was a latecomer. I was mm. sat down in a row with the other four latecomers mm. and people were just told to fire questions at us. And we had to just come up with answers on the spot, amusing answers to these questions. So here you go, Joe Cornish. Yeah. See how you do with these. OK. State right. a fact about yourself that would surprise the audience. I've got three bums. Not bad. You see... I think probably about <laughs> as good. Anthony's laughing. Anthony loves that. Look at that. She just loves bums. Uh, I came out with, check this out for yeah. rubbishness, yeah. right? I came out with, I'm sleeping with David Cameron. Oh, come on. That's political. That's rubbish. <laughs> it's what, so... Did anyone laugh at that? No, no, not really. No. They, was they there sort a of, sort of polite no, laughter? People, <laughs> yeah, people were supportive. Mm. They, everyone was yeah. laughing at everyone else's gags yeah. because no Give one wanted to be. Give me another one. What book are you reading at the moment? Oh, something oh, funny. This is you, tricky. you can't just be honest. You've got to oh. say something funny. So I was going to mm. say, yeah. So, so what are you going to say? Uh, the Argos catalogue. <laughs> quite, quite good. Quite good. I was going to say, okay, I'm going to say the Da Vinci Code, and then I'm going to be like pretend to be a ponce about it, you know, yeah. like as a joke. 
But then the person sat next to me said it. You could have made a, D- a Dick and Dom in Da Vinci Code joke. Oh, man. You could have said, oh, I'm reading the kids' version of uh, Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Dick and Dom in Da Vinci Code. <laughs> that would have gone down well. Wouldn't <laughs> that would have gone Trust down me, that would have gone down amazingly. I'm sure, but obviously I didn't think of that because I'm a jerk. Okay, how about this? Who's responsible for bird flu? Um, who's responsible for bird flu? You no, can't... I need some thinking time. No, you can't have any. You're on the spot. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher. Mrs. Thatcher? What does that mean? <laughs> it's like your David Cameron one, but more dated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to see that you would do as well as I yeah. did. Okay, here, here's another one. World's worst person to share a flat with. This was one of the ones where you have to stand forward and, and yeah. impersonate the world's worst person to share a flat with. Here's what I did. I stepped forward and I said, I won't need to use the toilet. I generally pee in bottles. What? what, what What's that what all about? What is that all about? I mean, wow. Christ, why did I think that was even worth stepping forward for? The only reason I did it was because I hadn't said anything for the last 17 minutes or something. I thought, this is embarrassing. I'm that just... sounds embarrassing. Oh, it was hideous. And here's, here's one more. First scenes of first drafts for famous movies. Go, Joe Cornish. Okay, uh, Titanic. Uh... Oh, I don't know. You see? Um, I don't know. E.T. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't think. <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? I stepped forward and I said, Oh, hey, guys, I just woke up from hypersleep and I found this really cuddly alien. Can we keep it? Oh, that's the first scene from Alien? Yeah. Yeah, that's the good, first man. Draft All I, I just said the names of films. Yeah, you that's not good enough, is it? <laughs> no, you wouldn't get through right. to... To prove I know two. some films. Anyway, it was exhausting and, and I'll never do it again. There you go, you see. So even Cornballs, a very quick-witted and funny man, wasn't able to do that much better than I did in those auditions. I'm not sure if they ever did a show in the end. I don't remember seeing it, but maybe I blocked it out. Okay, that is it for the podcast this week. Thanks so much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his work on this episode, for his production support. Thanks to Becca Tashinsky for her additional production support. Thanks to Helen Green for her brilliant artwork for this podcast and for my book, Ramble Book. Have you read Ramble Book? Oh, it's so good. Oh, hey, look, speaking of Ramble Book, perhaps I should have said earlier in the podcast, I wanted to apologise to some more people who had bought tickets for a... uh, a Ramble Book live reading show that I was supposed to be doing in Cork in Ireland this weekend. And a couple of weeks back, I was bemoaning the poor ticket sales for that particular show. Unfortunately, it doesn't look as if they've picked up in the interim, despite my shout-out. My agent is stressing to me that Ireland is still uh, dealing with lots of covid restrictions and uh she's saying oh no 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 it's nothing to do with you being totally unpopular it's covid it's quite good that you can blame anything on covid makes you feel better but the show in cork is sadly not going ahead the promoter has said that uh, they just haven't sold enough tickets to make it viable which is a real shame and i'm sorry if you're listening to this and you bought tickets for that show you probably know that already because you would have been contacted uh, to get a refund, I certainly hope. But I'm really, really uh, genuinely sorry about that. I hope I'll get out there another time when there's less COVID restrictions and perhaps my profile is a little higher. I need to get back on TV, Buckles. What about some kind of improvised comedy show? I just like being out here. It's so beautiful. Sun's going down. You can see all the spiders' webs stretching across the grass and the fields. But yeah, sorry, people of Cork. Albeit a small group of people in Cork. Thanks once again to Katie Wicks. And thanks as ever to Acast. And would you like a creepy hug? Oh, okay. No, no, that's fine. And Not everyone's into it. Uh, well, um, yeah, good to, good to see you. Uh, we should uh, do this again. You want to do it again? 
I'm improvising an awkward goodbye. I am good at improvising. Come here, I love you. Mm, I like to growl (laughs) when I hug people. Is that good? Till next time, take extremely good care. I love you. Bye!